welcome to episode number five of the Lowdown Society, where in addition to me traveling down memory lane to my music college days in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I get to hang out with my uh, best friend and my musical collaborator, Mr. Anthony Rankin. Hi, Anthony. What's up? In addition to being a, a great musician and a great friend, Anthony is probably very unhealthily obsessed Prince fan. Yep. The benefits of this is that we can uh, use him to make today's podcast a whole lot more interesting for you guys, hopefully. Your prime instrument is guitar, would you say? Yeah, I would say guitar first. But in spite of that, we're talking about Prince's bass player today, or he's primarily known for being Prince's bass player. That's so right. most people would know Brown Mark as Prince's maybe most prolific bass player. Uh, I'm not saying we say that, but would you say the I, casual listener? Yeah, I think that uh, the revolution is the more famous of the bands only because of the Purple Rain era. We got the chance to travel to Minneapolis and go to Paisley Park to visit in the evening after we went and saw Dr. Mambo's Combo, a cover band in Minneapolis that consisted and still consists of uh, members of the new power generation, the original version. And Sonny Thompson, a.k.a. Sonny T, who is our guest today, uh, is a bass player who took over after the legendary Doug Nelson who unfortunately passed a few years ago. To make today's episode a little more interesting for maybe a lot of bass players that aren't familiar with the songs that I chose to discuss with Sonny because of my super fandom of, of the songs in question. Most of these songs are from a record called The Gold Experience. Yep. Give us a little insight in how you came to love that record. I got into Prince when I was in my mid-teens, I guess. Um, and I started working backwards from kind of like the late 90s material. And that record was really under the radar at the time because it was out of print. It was kind of in this purgatory where it was released through Warner, but it was in the midst of him leaving Warner. So it, you couldn't just go buy it in a store like his other records. And by that time I had, I dug deep and I was obsessed and had been kind of listening to nothing but Prince, I think, for like two years. <laughs> I think at the time he was doing the NPG Music Club on his website. They had the vault and they showed like everything that he had ever done and I found that record. So I went on, uh, this was the early days of eBay. This was when eBay was the Wild West. And I think I, uh, I borrowed like 50 bucks from my mom to order a, uh, a sealed copy of the Gold Experience CD from Japan or something. I'm on my third <laughs> eBay copy myself as we speak of this record, by the way. So, um, But I, I remember listening to it in my parents' living room. Like, it came in the mail, I was super stoked, and, you know, it opens with uh, the synth thing on P control. There was a lot of those interlude kind of things that he had on that record uh, with, I don't know if it was Maite speaking or... Mm -hmm. um, sort of Latina voice doing kind of a fembot thing. But then uh, as soon as Endorphin Machine came on, just that the sort of roaring guitar slide in the very beginning, I was like, what is this? You know, and this is after like, pretty much I think at that point I had thought, I thought that I had heard everything that he'd recorded up to that point that I could get my hands on. Even the rarer stuff, like the stuff from Crystal Ball, um, Old Friends for Sale, which was like the kind of repackaged Warner contractual obligation record. Prince, while being such a prolific artist, he would work so fast and just kind of be so frantic to get ideas out. His records 
oftentimes sound unpolished. And this was the record where like everything was at a hundred. Like the mixes were fantastic, the, the kind of sonic quality of the drums and the everything just sounded super pro. The playing was insane, the songs were great. It was kind of what I wanted a lot of his other records to be, you know, like even like Sign of the Times, you know, which is, Sign of the Times is probably my favorite record. But again, sonically, it's a little messy. It's just kind of like some of this stuff sounds like demos. I touched on this a few times in the interview too, but Sonny Thompson and Michael Bland, the drummer who at the time must have been 1920, I have to double check this. In the early, yeah, like in 90 uh, when he joined. They not only bring a traditionally black R&B gospel thing, but they brought a reckless abandoned rock and roll thing to Prince that he then carried on into Chaos and Disorder, mm -hmm. his kind of right. hard rock trio jam record. But it really tied my two styles, favorite styles of music at the time, because I wasn't too big into pop mm -hmm. in the early 90s as I am now. But hard rock and, and funk, those guys brought it together in a way where it didn't sound to me like they faked any of those two genres. It was like Hendrix with like R&B keyboards. Yeah, you know? yeah. We're gonna actually get into detail about a few specific songs. I'm sure a lot of you guys haven't heard it, so you guys get are gonna it. Go on eBay, yeah. get it. Yeah, the gold experience. <laughs> Minneapolis, Minnesota, talking to Sonny T. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Hey, what's up, man? How y'all doing tonight? <laughs> we are in bunkers in Minneapolis, and quick story on that is when I was a student here at a music school 20 years ago, I used to come here every Sunday, Monday night, take notes and learn and get introduced to a lot of the funk R&B that I had not listened to growing up. So this is kind of a holy ground for me, and I haven't been back here to listen to these guys, the combo, in 20 years. So it's going to be a fun night. Yeah, it should be cool. I'm hoping Michael's going to be here. I don't know if he's playing tonight. The reason that, that I connected with your playing right. is the Gold Experience record. Right. That's my record of all time. It's my thriller, if you will. It's my oh, cool. perfect pop record. That's what really stole my soul. I feel like there's a cult following of that record. Right. Somebody wrote on Wikipedia, I think, I was researching the other day, that a lot of people felt that was the Purple Rain of the 90s. Really? I had no idea. <laughs> well, here's the thing to me. Prince had his jazz records, had the funkier stuff, and then he had Chaos and Disorder, which you were on as well. Mm. It's more of a rock and roll record. I feel like the Gold Experience struck the balance between all those oh. genres that couldn't define him. Exactly. And, and it had a lot of mainstream pop sensibility on it. Why? Right. And some right. of his funky stuff, too. song up for uh, discussion with Mr. Thompson was uh, I Hate You, mm -hmm. which was kind of a single, kind of a kind of a mini hit, right? Yeah, I think The Most Beautiful Girl in the World and I Hate You and maybe Dolphin were the songs that I think that, they, that Warner kind of pushed from this record, which in hindsight, it's like hard, I, it's hard to really recognize any true singles from that mm -hmm. album, um, but I think he made a video for it and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. I watched it the other day, so finally, I, can, I can confirm that. Uh, but that one is, is lyrically and energy-wise, he, uh, 
he finds himself in a courtroom with his ex-lover yes. that he's yeah. still obsessed with. It's very, uh, it's Broadway in all the good ways. It's a very dramatic uh, reading, almost. Yeah. It's a play. We talked about the bass playing on this song before I knew I was going to get a chance to ask Sonny about it. What is it that you, as a musician, heard there? I think a lot of it, for me, the, the stuff that I remember most is the sort of descending... Uh, lines, the melodic lines that Sonny will play in the holes because mm -hmm. the groove is so kind of spacious and big and the dynamics are huge in this song. Like the swings are really big. It's kind me. of an aggressive ballad. Yeah, <laughs> but even when it gets quiet, it's like, you know, he's he's super tight on the kind of pools and pops. But it's, it's very churchy too, in a way. The keys are very, uh, a lot of gospel elements. It's one of his most dramatic songs to me. It's almost like the beautiful ones when he, you know, he's like writhing on the stage and screaming about Apollonia. It kind of gets into that territory. Yeah. The most dramatic part, for sure, is when the courtroom scene, which yes. is a long breakdown where they just loop the chord progression of the song. I'm going to play that for you guys, that and a chorus. But during the courtroom scene is where Sonny does most of his musical commentary. To me, this might be a far-fetched analogy, but he almost comments like a nylon string Spanish guitar player, a mm -hmm. little bit between those lyric lines. So here is I Hate You, which is a total bass fest. I hope you guys love it. You have just accessed the hate experience. Do you wish to change your entry? Very well. Please enjoy your experience. Miss 
had the defendant place her hands behind her back So I can tie her up tight And get into the act The act of showing her how good it used to be I want it to be so good She falls back in love sheet and I want you to pump your hips like you used to and baby you better stay on the beat did you do to your other man the same things that you did to me right now I hate you so much I want to make love until you see that it's killing me baby to be without you cause all I track I hate you in particular right there's a there's a long uh, spoken word part when Prince is in court the playing under that was that largely improvised or did he, did he give you much direction on this I stuff? just improvised you just did you I just did me <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great and personally because I played that song in a few cover bands I love how you and Mike coming from a funk R&B thing it's completely comfortable going into full rock and roll at times. Oh, yeah. To me, it feels like there's not a genre thing with you as a rhythm section. Exactly. In the chorus of I Hate You, I encourage everyone to check it out. And that chorus, there's a place where, where it goes... Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, right. And the 3-4-3, three, three, as we say in Nashville, right. you play those root five like a metal guy. Right, wow. right. Is that something that just happened because you were just putting beef behind it? Yeah, it was just me, man. It's just like I, if I can get any kind of sound reinforcement, that's the way I think about bass. Yeah. Because bass should be sound reinforcement. Yeah. And if you can use a harmonic to, to help do that. Yeah. So then that's cool. Endorphin Machine, we mentioned that quickly in the top of the show. That song, it blew my mind too when I first heard it. There's not much to it really, but there's some uh, insane, crazy high notes singing and the bass line is just kind of a normal kind of blues walking down dominant seven type bass line, but it's the attitude that it's played with that makes it special. It's so heavy, like the song is just heavy metal blues. I know you compared it to Led Zeppelin. It is like a modern... R&B Led Zeppelin. Yeah. 
it feels like also because it was 1995, right? That's when the record came out, yeah. The verses, which are over a rock riff, he sort of raps. It's kind of like a one note, really fast rhythmic Yeah, it's like a less offensive Rage Against the Machine kind of rap over a riff. Right. That song to me, that's my black dog. Yeah, it's a great song. Actually, I I wrote my bass part for that song. So I just got that Warwick bass because I I was playing just four string before that. I just got the five string. I was like, I need that low beat. Oh, yeah, it's anchored on the low beat. There's several low beats in every bar. Yeah, exactly. And he just walks down the the, the route, the flat seven, the six five, yeah. Exactly. So yeah, that was a, that's a fun song to play. So actually, the first song I fell in love with on that record was 319. Oh yeah. I always thought Kiss was a classic, like everyone else, but 319, I decided quickly I kind of liked better than Kiss, and I can't really say why. And there's bass on it, but more than Kiss, because there's none. But Right. I don't know, I think 319 is a more evolved version of what he was doing on songs like Kiss, or even like uh, You Got the Look. The sort of treatment that 319 gets, along with Billy Jack Bitch, in the horns especially. Now, Billy Jack Bitch has real horns, along with the synth horns. But the thing that he kind of started around the Batman soundtrack, where there were just these kind of key samples that they sound like they're samples of real horns, but they're played on a keyboard. Um, So there's that, and there's just that kind of... um, There's a lot of sampled elements, even in the guitars, where... There's, you hear these sounds, they're just like, what? Well, it's kind of like a digital distortion version of a guitar, mm-hmm. but it's played on a keyboard or something. It's like a very uh, notably Prince sound that I think is, 
it's just one of those elements that I don't think is obvious, but when it's like the one thing that he did, like, oh man, that's definitely on a Prince record. Another song off that record that people should be aware of because I feel it's got the similar approach as Kiss. I feel like it's like a modern day Kiss with 319. Yeah, it's a great song. So here's a song and not off the Gold Experience, off a much more accessible record uh, to, to Which get. Which is the, the first real new power generation record, yeah. Diamonds and Pearls. Yeah. The title track, what's your take on that song? I mean, there's like sort of a classic arrangement element to it. You know, there's like this, every, there's all this counterpoint going on and the melody, the bass playing the melody was was always really interesting to me because the bass drives the song, but not in the way that it would in a normal arranged song. I talk about this with him, but there's a bass drop, and the way I count the song, in the second verse especially, it's very obvious, the bass drops, boom, like you would normally do on a one and leave the rest of the bar open. Right. But he does it on four. <laughs> I mean, the way I count the song is on, it's on B4. You're right. Technically, the bass is playing the melody, but it's not the melody. It's a counter melody to right. the vocal. It's right. not the main melody, but it's a whole other one that he doubles with the keyboards. But I'd never heard any pop song ever, not even in the musical side of things, Andrew Lloyd Webber, sure. which I'd never heard a pop song ever being played like that. Yeah. And again, it's not technically hard necessarily, uh, the bass part especially. The song features no shredding except for the drum fill going into what's the second <laughs> verse. Yeah, the 60 uh, the, film uh, triplet thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the post bridge, I guess yeah, you would say. Yeah, yeah. You know. D to the I, right before yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. This song is, is great, and I was more curious from a compositional standpoint than a bass playing standpoint how this came about. So check out what Sonny had to say about it. Diamonds and Pearls. It's also something you played on, right? Yeah. 
that song kind of has, I don't want to call it the downbeat, but it's got the root note, the low root note, as I counted, on beat four. In the second right. verse, the whole thing is turned around. Was that, Yeah. how arranged was that? Do you remember if that was something that you guys collaborated on, the track? Oh, yeah. Everybody pitched in. I mean, he had a, a certain idea that he wanted. But as far as what you wanted to play in certain parts, you could actually move around. You know, it's like the do 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 and then the, the downbeat is not on the downbeat. It messed with my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man.
So Get Off is one of the nastiest grooves ever recorded by anyone. Oh, me. yeah. And I was talking about James Brown a second ago in regards to a different song, but this one has kind of a, you said slow down muddy James Brown, but he's got that high-pitched snare mm -hmm. and the super low bass, and this does a thing. I'll get into it very much in detail here, and I've written articles about it for Premier Guitar, but it goes into the function of the electric bass together with synth sounds creating a feeling of low end, but not really a tonal center. Right. The song, in, in many ways, kind of, until the vocal really hits, even like after the vocal hits, it kind of tricks the ear as to where the tonal center is because of all the samples going on. The pitch of the snare is just kind of whacked out and um, that high ringy thing, there's the, the sort of distorted record scratch, you know? So there's, I feel like there's a lot of competing frequencies going on that create this kind of restlessness. You know, I was trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and then the groove is just so, like, deep, you know. Yeah. It's just nasty. When we played this live a few years back, I remember, this is before I was using this technique, but I remember struggling a little bit with, because we didn't have any synth bass things or a few of the samples we didn't have either. I was really struggling with how to make the low end feel like it does here on this record. Yeah. Sonny gets in detail about this and this is an introduction to a technique that is so usable. This is sort of derived from Larry Graham but on a modern level you can hear Ethan Farmer do this thing often with a little more high end on his tone but he's also really good at doing the thing that that happens in Get Off. Uh, if you want to do an electric bass, on a synth bass, you can do it too. But. So what do you call that? Like, what, what would you... I know that I think Sonny calls it bubbling. Well, but... he, he calls it bubbling. I've heard church guys have told me that in the church world, in the gospel world, they call it greasing. When I lived in Minneapolis, they call it the Minneapolis rumble. But again, we'd have to call it the San Francisco rumble because I really do <laughs> think Larry Graham is sort of behind it because... You can't be a precise slapper and get this sound. You have to continually do enough vibrato or enough glissando where you're far from slick. But it creates a sexy and very musical thing that makes music sound like something else than music. Slide, get off 
23 positions in a one night stand. Get up. I'll only call you after if you say I can. Get up. Talented boy. You're listed on Get Off as well. Right. Yeah. The approach on a song like that, when I lived here, I was, a, I would say when I was a kid. Right. They referred to it as the Minneapolis Rumble. Right. And some people in the gospel world refer to it as greasing. Right. And I would assume on the track Get Off, that's kind of what's going on a little bit. Yeah, it's right? just a lot of bubbling and a lot of low freak under there. Yeah. Low frequency stuff. Because I, I was using like uh, octave and a fifth. Yeah. So you could kind of hear what I'm playing, yeah. but you really kind of couldn't, you know. Yeah. And he loved that. He just like, I want confusion under there Yeah. on, on this and just let it be confusing. I'm like, okay, I can fix that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I doubt so it. So you roll off some high end, you add a fifth to that low note. Yeah, yeah, add a and fifth. And when, when you play a chord that low, it's going to muddy it up. And it's going to muddy it, it up a lot. And then you just bubble it out, you know, and just, and it just, it, and it doesn't actually conflict with the kick drum at all. It yeah. doesn't conflict with the kick drum at all. It's sonic. And when you say bubbling, I want to be clear. Again, I wrote an article about this, so you can find it on premiere.com. The bubbling thing kind of stems a little bit from the Larry Graham approach where right. you're playing with your thumb, but you're not slapping. Yeah, it's more, it's, fa it's like it's a softer, false notes. It's yeah. a softer false note, but it's more dynamic than just hitting false notes. And it's also about really making the bass imperfect and not punchy, right? Yeah, exactly. And getting exactly. The fret noises. And yeah, that, that sound, he was, a, he was a master at that. They took us in the video editing suite today. The right. room where he would have the post-game, pre-game video. Right. They showed a few clips off the Musicology tour where he picked up a jazz bass and went to town. Right. And his bass playing, and this is a compliment to the man, right. but he wasn't clean. He played dirty bass. Oh, yeah. He just didn't care. He, If he could get the idea out, yeah. that was more important to him than actually worrying about so much of the technique, you know, because he already had his style of sound. So it's automatically going to fit whatever profile he uses. So as far as the greasing in the Minneapolis rumble, it's a thing, again, that I feel like it's not completely the Larry Graham thing, but I think it's something that you guys did your own thing with. Yeah, you exactly. You know, because, I mean, I, I love really clean players, too, but yeah. I don't want to play too clean. No, you're, you're... You know, it's not it's never been my style. You I, know? I've always appreciated the dirt and the grit and the attitude in your playing. Right. Speaking of that, there's a thing, and you can go, like, the latest D'Angelo tour I was at. Oh, and, right. And he, he's taken a few of his songs and he's made them into early 80s prints. Right. You know, they're kind of fast, snappy. I haven't heard it, so I don't know what he's doing. So I can't really, I got to check it out. So then I can say, all right, D'Angelo, now come on, man. Or, oh, that's cool. Fun fact about Get Off is that it was the 
first single released to radio stations from Diamonds and Pearls before the record was even announced. You know, Prince had been evolving at a pretty dramatic rate. Every record was completely different between 1999 and the Batman soundtrack. But from what I had read, the radio stations received an unmarked record in a plain black sleeve, and they had no idea what it was, and it just said Warner Brothers on it. So they like listened to this record and were like, what is this? You this know? is crazy content. Yeah. <laughs> so it was basically the introduction of the new power generation officially as, as their first big single. The bass that's full of duct tape up there is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Warwick Dolphin. Is yeah. that like an early '90s model? That's like an early '90s model. I have I've had that bass since like '93. Yeah. And I, it's hard to get rid of it. I mean, it's it's falling apart. It's going down, but the sound is just so awesome. Yeah. You know? The Diamonds and Pearls record, the Gold Experience record, Cash and Disorder. Was that your main instrument on that, or did I use what did I use on that? I used. Um, I used, actually, I used the Warwick, but not this Dolphin. It was the, I can't remember what the model is. It's the, the model that's before this model. It's a lower model. Yeah. And uh, I got two of them. Mm -hmm. And I had them painted with the Gold Experience and all that mess on them. Later on, years yeah. later. But that's, I used Warwick on that record. And a jazz bass on a couple of things. And uh, Olympic. Yeah. Also. I know you recently got a vampire. Yeah, right? vampire base. Are you still trying to make friends with that thing? What's I'm going still on? trying to make friends with it, man. I'm still trying to beat it up, man. It's getting there, though. Yeah, it's getting it's, there. I, it's, it's hard to let go of that dolphin, though. It's just like, you know, you have a, a really great woman, but something happened and you, and you lost her. Yeah. And you're with somebody else and you just, you know, like, dang, I just, you know. You just still want to call her or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. You're a fantastic guitar player as well. And there's, it's well documented that Prince admired you growing up and your musicianship. Oh, yeah. And I think your guitar playing. And I read somewhere that you kind of hipped him to some chord voices and stuff when he was coming up as a kid. Oh, yeah. He used to stay at my house all the time. So, you know, he would come and hang out and stuff. And then he'd just sit in my back room and we'd be playing. He's like, wow, how'd you do that? I said, this is an E minor 7 flat 5. This is E minor 6. Yeah. You know, this is an E minor, but you know, you want to do the 9 there so you, then you can put the seven over the top yeah you know and i showed him a lot of a lot of crazy stuff how did it go about when you joined his band you and mike and tommy and rosie that version of the band for a lot of fans but especially a lot of my musician friends that's the band that's the band that gave him the most authority and the most meat behind his right, ideas right how did that come about that you because I know you played guitar with uh, Nick Jonas in the administration for a while. Exactly. So how, how did the bass guitar, it's just because he was already a guitar player, so is that why you ended up on bass? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And plus Levi was there already. So. Yeah, yeah. And we, plus Levi's a great bass player too. Yeah. But he's a great guitar player, and that's what he really wanted to play. Yeah. Because we talked about it. What do you want to play, man? What do you want to play? Yeah. I was like, no, man, I'm playing bass, man. You play guitar. You been... Wanting to, because you know, Miko was playing, Miko yeah. Weaver was playing guitar with them before. And I knew Levi wanted to go back to guitar because he's just an awesome guitar player. That's how that all worked out. The thing about Prince that's the most astounding to this day is his complete disregard for 
any kind of genre or color even in music. Right. He was just a musician. And R&B, jazz, rock, pop, his bands were always male, female, black, white. There was, right. He you know, didn't he, care. He just wanted a good band, a good sound, and a good look. You know, yeah, that's but, what it was. And he didn't care if it was black, white, purple. If a turtle could play, he put a turtle up there with a guitar. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he didn't really care. On that note, I want to go back to what I kind of touched on before by you and Mike. Back when I was in school here in town, it was Doug Nelson on bass. Oh, yeah, Doug was a monster. He's a good friend of mine, too. Uh, God rest his soul. I was 20 at the time, and I was there with a notepad and, like, a DAT player recording and trying to, trying right. to steal oh, shit, yeah, I you know? <laughs> but what I always noticed about Mike, and then when you guys, you guys have a rhythm section, again, is, to me, there's a sense in the middle of Shaka Khan and Sly Stone is in your blood. Right. I hear Led Zeppelin, and I hear all this rock in there, too. Right. I felt like, compared to a lot of other world-class funk rhythm sections, you guys had a leg in rock that I always loved. Right. Well, you, I grew up on rock, too, and Michael played with a lot of rock bands. He was a kid, too, yeah. so, you know, my my thing was rock. I grew up on, you know, Vanilla Fudge, Grand Funk Railroad, Led Zeppelin, yeah. you, know, all, you know, and uh, Pink Floyd, you know, all, all the crazy stuff back then, you know. So, and then, it, you know, back when, when the 70s kicked in, you know, then the whole fusion thing kicked in with John McLaughlin and, you know, all these guys, and then uh, Chick Corea and his groups, you know, and then uh, then Al Hallsworth came up, came in after that, and then it just got crazier and crazier. Good time to be coming up, It, it right? was a great time in music because it started getting really super experimental, you know, and I just was loving it. It's like, wow. So, are you born and raised in Minneapolis? Yeah, I was born and raised here. A lot of world-class musicians, and I certainly understand this because I lived here for three years and I still have a thing where this town pulls me. Right. Uh, even though I haven't lived here in 20 years. Wow. A lot of world-class players like yourself stayed in Minneapolis. I mean, I just love being I just love being here. I mean, I can go to the lake and I can go fishing or I can come play when I'm in town. I can play with my friends, you yeah. know. But eventually I'm going to get out of here. I don't know where I'm going to go, if I'm going to live overseas or if I'm going to go to... LA and I'm really definitely I don't know if I'm gonna move to LA but I'm gonna eventually gonna have to leave here because I don't know what's happening here with this scene nowadays it's kind of you know weird I I can't really walk into Paisley Park because I'm still mourning kind of French you know for me I, I don't know it's like you know it's it's fun being here with my friends when I'm working yeah. I and mean, when I'm not working on a on a tour with somebody or something, it's yeah. just kind of cool to come back home and decompress. And, yeah. And it's it's a lot slower, so you're not in the in the mad rush to say being in L.A. or Paris or Milan or something crazy. You know, when you just everything is, you know. So there's the thing called the Minneapolis sound. Right. And you're you're one of the architects of it. You've been around so long. Was there a Minneapolis sound before Prince? Yeah, there were a lot of guys around. There was a group called Purple Haze that when I was a kid and my uncle, or my cousin, his name was Buncey, he was an organ player. Uh -huh. He had a band called The Young Players. And they were all great. But they they were jazz, but they were jazz and funk players, you know, but they were like, he played the organ, guitar, bass, drums. You know, they had no effects, anything. The guitar player played a hollow body. Buncey played the organ and he sang. You know, and it was just an amazing band. But I mean, they never went anywhere. He ended up dying, you know, and you know how it is, you know, it's just one of them things, you know. But they were great. Man, they were great. And what was your first band that had success? 
that Prince kind of found you in? I think the Steels. The Steels, because he would always come to the shows that we played at the Fine Line. You know, and then we ended up doing a show with uh, Pop Staples, me and Stokely from uh, uh, Ben Condition. Stokely was playing the drums, I was playing the guitar. And some guy from Philly was playing bass, I can't remember the guy's name. And Tommy was playing keyboards. So he was like, okay, all right. I'm gonna, I want you guys to uh, play with, uh, he did a band for Margaret called MC Flash. Really, really good rock record. Yeah. And I was playing guitar on that album. And we shot a couple of videos, but nothing ever came of it. But then, um, when Mavis, he wanted us to play behind Mavis Staples. Mm -hmm. So this was on the new tour. So I ended up playing guitar with Mavis Staples before he died. Doug was in the band. It was Billy Fonzie. He was the place, you'll see him tonight. Billy, Doug, Nelson, Michael's playing drums. Tommy's playing keyboards and Margaret was singing. Oh, sure. And uh, she was singing background for Mavis. And that's how the whole thing actually really got started. Yeah. You know, and then he called me after that tour and was like, son, how can you, you want to join the band? I'm like, sure, why not? So it's like, it'd be great, man. We get to play together again, yeah. you know, after year. After you know? sitting in your back room going through chords. <laughs> the connection on a personal level, I think people, when they hire a band, sometimes it's audition. Who's the most technical player on each instrument? But I think, right. I think you can hear when there's a spiritual connection, man. Something right. you can... I love technique, but for me, the best bass players to me understand where their place actually fits within the overall sound. You know, I mean, you can step out because you know everybody's doing that now. It's like, come on. Yeah, YouTube. Okay. YouTube is filled with stepping out. I'm yeah, like, and that's I always wonder, like, are you guys? Do you like playing actual bass? Right. Are you, you know like playing with people? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's. I mean, I love all that stuff too. But what you do all that and slow all that stuff down. Yeah. And then make something really cool out of it, you know? You know, it's, it's just like, you know, I, I think uh, Chaka Khan, uh, them records, the, the bass on them records are just monstrous. Because them guys is early Motown records. James yeah. James, just amazing. I mean, you know, but I, I, I love a lot of the new stuff too. I, I love what they're where they're going and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. They're reaching, 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 reaching to the point where, but my, my point is, is for me, I, I want to admire that, and I, I play a lot of crazy stuff too. But for me, functionality works better for me yeah. than, you know, if they ask me to solo, then it's all bets are off at that point. But, you know, I'm not trying to solo through every record, every yeah. song, you yeah. know. <laughs> so it shouldn't sound like a bass solo through every record, it should sound like a unit moving together. Speaking of soloing, you're quite the effects user. Every time I've heard you, you're pretty creative with your effects. Oh yeah. Can you uh, give our uh, fellow bass players a little clue to us what your favorite, <laughs> stuff, what your favorite stuff is? Well, I, I use a whammy, but I broke it, so I'm not using it tonight. <laughs> but I'm using, actually, I'm using an M13 uh, for Digitech. This for guitar. I'm using that for bass tonight. Uh huh. Because I can program all 12 effects into it. It's a lot quicker to get to instead of bringing my big board with yeah. all the you know all that stuff you know but it's really cool like but i have like distort three distortions set up delays reverse delays octave uh envelope you know reverbs you know long delays and, you know and i can chain on chain all this stuff synth you know just different sounds in it that sound really cool for bass so it sounds to me at least the stuff i hear you do i hear octave pedal i hear the envelope filter, and I just heard you check a bunch of chorus at Soundcheck. Right. 
And do you have the Larry Graham like over the top super distortion too for the old? Oh blow yeah, up I have blow? hot, but they don't want me to be that hot in here. I, I call it scream. the I call it the blow up the PA distortion. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to do that for a while. Right, right. I mean, I'll live in Nashville, so that shit get me fired quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to have it hot. I can't get that hot in here, but yeah, I use like three distortions in this particular program. It's a digital box, but it sounds really good for the bass. It's really cool. So I'm like, I'm gonna take this from the guitar, from my guitar rig. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. just going right into this. So something that people might be interested in also is where can they find you nowadays? Where can they hear that thing that are on those records? We were talking maybe like six months back when I wrote a thing on your playing in Premier Guitar Magazine. Right. You were going to Italy, I think, for a while. Yeah, you? I'm working with Italian uh, artist in Georgia. What kind of stuff is that? It's like uh, pop funk. She's really a great singer. Girl. Yes. Oh my God, she was singing. But it's uh, we have uh, in in the band is uh, three Italians and two Americans, and uh, the drummer actually played with Pink for like nine years. Okay. And he moved to Italy, and he's just over there having a great time. So I'm working with this guy from Slave Raider on his album. He mm -hmm. lives up in. God knows we're up in Minnesota, but it's like more of a heavy metal. Yeah. It's totally from the opposite direction where I'm coming from. So that low A is on the bass. Oh, yeah. You know, craziness. But um, you should be hearing something from me actually pretty soon. Because I'm working out my own material now, so I'm, yeah, I'm cool. putting out a, an album. With, with you being a multi-instrumentalist, man, that's something I think a lot of people would like to hear. I keep coming back to stuff here, but the connection between you and Mike. Has yeah. there been other projects? I know he's out with Soul Asylum right now, off right. and on. But except for Nick Jonas, has there been other projects where people have been like me where they go, yeah, that's my rhythm section. I love the sound of those two dudes together. Right. Have you guys done much stuff together since? Oh, uh, well, yeah, we did uh, We did an album called The Great Tribulation. It's more of a gospel type of record. It's a Sons of Almighty record. Tell the people about that, because I've seen you guys promote that on Facebook a lot. And I yeah. see a lot of the key players in the Sons of the Almighty is also in this, in this band. Exactly. Here. Yeah, we did that record a few years ago, and it just turned out so. It was with Jeff Lee Johnson, guitar player, monstrous guitar player from Philly. He's got, God rest his soul, he's gone now. He came in and cut most of the guitar tracks. We split the guitar tracks. I played bass. And uh, Tommy came in and played keyboards, the juice, but you'll be here tonight. He sang on it. He sang all the leads on the record. Now that we've heard from Sonny about some of the great stuff he was part of, and, and obviously I, I stated all over that, that him and Michael Bland for me is the best. The best rhythm section for Prince, possibly of all time. And, you know, again, rage can ensue in the comment <laughs> section. I don't care. But, uh, you know, that stuff is personal. It's part of the course. Yeah. But obviously, Prince himself has recorded astounding bass lines. Some stuff that we both have nerded out over bass-wise is DMSR. Mm -hmm. And there's a live version of DMSR where the first chord does a thing that's very common. It took me a while to figure out how to sort of do it. But you keep the low octave and then you hammer on at the same downbeat as you hit the low octave. You hammer on the flat 7 to 1 or the flat 7 to 8, mm -hmm. as it were. And that's kind of a 
thing that I hadn't heard anyone do before Prince, and he mm-hmm. does it often. And, and Rhonda uh, does a lot of that. Yeah. Rhonda Smith. Yeah, and Rhonda executes it beautifully. DMSR is one of those bass lines, right? Yeah, if you can find any live recordings from the Musicology 2004 tour, like the that's sort of the quintessential version to yeah. me, where she's just all that, like pretty much every downbeat, every bar too. Speaking of the Musicology tour, the title track for that album, the live version, which was decidedly slinkier than the record mm-hmm. version. A faster tempo, but funkier, funkier pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's a B natural and it's the high octave, so it's the, uh, the 14th fret on the A string and the 16th fret on the G string, basically, and you just play octaves super high up. And when you play it without a click or without a drum machine, it's not super funky, but with the other instrument, it becomes super funky. That's the thing to check out. What's some of Prince's own recorded bass lines that... Oh, well, Head. Yeah. And uh, the version yes. of Head that we love, it's, is that the Japanese live version? Yeah, it's, it's basically a bootleg version. But uh, since his passing, the floodgates have opened on YouTube. I'm sure that you can find it is from the Love Sexy Tour in 89, I believe. The other thing, too, to mention about Prince playing bass is that he played all the actual bass tracks on, I think, all but maybe two of the songs on the Musicology album. So that's him actually playing the, the high octave bass part on the album. More glorious Prince jams where he played on the tracks that people might dig up that wasn't yeah, necessarily radio Because there's not a lot of super famous bass lines on a lot of the radio hits. Right, and yeah. I mean, a lot of them are, I mean, even some of them are just synth bass or... Kiss and Dove's Cry have no bass. <laughs> Who needs bass? That's right, yeah. yeah. One deep cut, I guess it's a deep cut. I don't know, I was, I was a rather small infant when this was, <laughs> when this was out. Um, on the Parade album, the song Another Lover Hole in Your Head is quintessential Prince uh, octave slap to me. When the, when the bass kicks in, uh, when the fool thing kicks in, I think, you know, like eight bars in, it's just got that very Prince, but the super interesting thing he does is that he mirrors the melody of the vocal um, exactly in the verses, but he plays it a third up. So it's a harmony, but since it's on bass, it actually, the octave, you know, it sits below the vocal. So it's like a sixth. It's is a it sixth. an inverted third? Yes. Yeah. He plays, yeah, it's a sixth below the, the vocal, but... Um, it, it, you know, he starts on the minor third and then goes up the scale from there. And it's super interesting because it's like there's not really any like low rhythmic element in that part of the song in the verses. And it's just this singy bass line. And I just, I think to just think of something like that speaks to his, you know, sort of uh, his artistry and his originality and how he approached not just bass, but how he approached all instruments. Yeah, a lot of times out of the traditional role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love to the Nines. That's a great track from the Symbol album, which is the album after Diamonds and Pearls. That album was kind of another, again, a sort of natural evolution from Diamonds and Pearls. The sort of big orchestrated keyboard elements, the high drama. <laughs> Two other songs where I assume Prince played bass. One of them is off the Musicology record called Call My Name just a classic ballad. And as much as some of Prince's recordings aren't fidelity from a fidelity standpoint awesome, Call My Name in headphones is 
pure gold. Yes, it's bliss. Yeah, it's fantastic <laughs> mix, great sounds, and plays drums on that song too. He does a few. In addition, to having a beautiful ballad slap tone, he comments on a few lyric lines by doing a few trills, very lyrical, like somebody would play on a classical guitar or a flute more so than a bass. So that one's definitely in there for me. And then from the Rave unto the Joy Fantastic album which came out in 1999. Uh, that sounds uh, right. Yeah, before the 2000 yep, DVD there, yeah. Yep. The, uh, the song So Far So Pleased, I think it's him playing. There's a very small chance it might be Rhonda Smith playing, but I think it's him playing. It's super cool because the hook of the song, which would be like a sig lick on a guitar or a keyboard, is played up high on the bass, and it's super melodic and just these really legato lines, while this super chunky guitar just you know, propels the thing along and basically I'm, I almost feel like the, the guitar does the job of like what a traditional eighth note bass line would Oh, do. absolutely. It's a super chunky like death metal guitar <laughs> down low and the bass has a really clean modern jazz bass tone playing uh, up high. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a few double stops in there too, mm -hmm. but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. When we were at Paisley Park, everything was left, probably a few of you guys have been too now because it's been open for a while. His bass setup was an Ampeg head with two four tents, two Ampeg four tents. Sure, there was, a, I think, an Avalon DI. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was literally completely standard, nothing strange at all. Yeah. But his bass is an ESP jazz bass, the brand ESP, that's sort of more famous for building George Lynch's signature guitar than and a lot of those metal guys I grew up on. But it's an, uh, a lot of Prince's records of late, his later records, when he's playing bass, which even if the songs aren't his most recognizable or famous ones, some of his later records, and I mean Musicology On really, has some of the best bass tones. And that's an ESP jazz bass. It looked like Seymour Duncan's in there. I think they were bass lines. That's the tone. And I'll be looking for one of those. Because sure, none of that tone is in his hands. Let's <laughs> <laughs> start with the turnaround. Turn around, turn around. Two, three, come on! enjoyed this slightly different episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. I'll be taking a few weeks break from editing these podcasts to go out and interview new players and I have some very exciting guests lined up. As always, if you guys are enjoying this podcast, please let your friends know and post about it so that other bass players get hip to this. If you're on iTunes and you give me a review on there, that'd be an amazing thing as well. And please don't hesitate to contact me if you have any guests in the side man, side woman world that you guys really want to hear from that you've never had the opportunity to read about or hear from, and I'll do my best to track them down. All right, people, stay funky, stay low, and I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society Podcast.